Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, James Runcie. On his new novel, The Great Passion. James Runcie is an award-winning filmmaker, playwright and literary curator. He is the author of 12 novels that have been translated into 12 languages, including the seven books in the Grandchester Mysteries series. He has been artistic director of the Bath Literature Festival, Head of Literature and Spoken Word at London South Bank Centre and Commissioning Editor for Arts on BBC Radio 4. And he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Now, James has a new novel out, which we're going to be talking about today, which is The Great Passion. James, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be with you. I'm going to ask you how you would describe The Great Passion, first of all. Well, it's a novel about Johann Sebastian Bach and the writing of the St. Matthew Passion. He wrote several passions, only two of which survived, the St. John and the St. Matthew. But this was regarded as the great passion, his greatest work. Some people aren't sure about, they think the Mass in B minor is his greatest work or some of the keyboard music. But for me, it's his greatest work and it is the great passion. And it's an attempt to show what it was like to be in Leipzig, to make a kind of fly-on-the-wall documentary, but in literary form, uh, to show what it was like to be in Leipzig in 1727. Uh, So the action takes place mainly over one year, and it's about what it's like to play, sing, and hear Bach's music for the first time. What was it like to be there? So we see get this insight into into Bach's life through a narrator, Stefan Silberman. So tell us who he is. He is a boy who sings the soprano parts in the St. Matthew Passion. He's told from the point of view of 23 years later when he's a grown man uh, on the day of Bach's funeral. And he looks back to his time 23 years earlier when he was this choir boy singing and was a boy at the school. And so it's a boy's eye view of being present at that time and the thing is I don't know what it's like to be Bach obviously I have no idea really I can't imagine that but I can imagine what it's like to be a boy in a school in the competitive school uh, boarding school uh, because I was one and I know what it's like to try and put on a show 
uh, the St. Matthew Passion and be convinced that it was going to be a disaster or be very worried about whether it's going to work or not with people falling ill, not being up to the job. And I know about that from life in theatre. So it's an attempt by working at it or getting to it from what I know, from what I know about. I don't know what it's like to be, amazingly, I don't know what it's like to be a brilliant composer. Well, I hope, James, that your experience <laughs> at school wasn't quite as bad as, as Stefan's yeah. at the uh, St Thomas Church Choir School. So tell us about this school that he is sent to and, and what happens to him there. Well, it's a school of 55 boys uh, and divided into four choirs of, of 12 with some spares. And they're all in, they're all streams and so they're all in a top stream or a set choir one two three or four choir one is obviously the top it's a boarding school the food's dreadful there's quite a lot of bullying um there's quite a lot of uh, insanitary conditions lots of rats for example and uh, you have to be a bit careful i'm not sure i've entirely succeeded in getting into sort of dickensian do the boys hall territory and getting into that kind of um what's now considered a bit of a cliche, sort of unhappy boy at school bullied. Uh, He has red hair. I had red hair when I was a child and was bullied for that a little bit, not as bad as in this story. But the idea is a sort of high-pressure academic environment where, you know, you really are judged all the time. And there is literally no escape. I mean, you are banged up, as it were. As a, as a, as a boy in a, in a school where there's very little free time and, of course, no privacy. And I was quite interested in that. Your most private thoughts are public and there's no getting away from other people apart from, you know, the bathroom, really. And even there, that's all pretty collective. So there's no escape. You, you are always exposed. You're always vulnerable. You, yes, there is no time in which you are alone, but there is a time in which you are slightly protected, which is in rehearsals for the music. And he is really good. The narrator, Stefan Silverman, is a really brilliant soprano. Uh, Of course, that's not necessarily an advantage in a school where people are often punished for talent. Tell us something about Leipzig itself. And so Saxony in 1726-27, what was, I guess, what's the geopolitical situation at the time there? Who, Who runs it? What's the church? Tell us what the place was like. Well, it's a, it's a provincial, it's a sort of big provincial town. I suppose you might think it's something like, well, it's hard to tell, but something like, um, I, I always compare it to Abingdon rather bizarrely, rather than Oxford or London. It's a kind of place with a, or like St Albans, where I grew up, where there's an abbey. It's not Westminster Abbey. It's not, so it's a big market town, big market trading town with markets, uh, big market square. Uh, Bach is, uh, runs four churches. It's very Lutheran. It's very Calvinist. It's very unshowy. It is very somber. Um, doesn't mean they don't have jokes. They they, the major delicacy is called Leipzig Alerka, which is a lark, uh, a lark tartlet. Um, and lark and lark catching, not, not, this is not one for vegetarians, uh, were very popular. So you would have these little lark pies and uh, very good fish, carp particularly, um, and good burgermeisters wearing lots of black and lots of death, loads and loads of early deaths. So four funerals a day going on most days in the city and not great life expectancy. Bark died at 65, which is about a little more than average and um, an enormous families. I mean, obviously Bark was um you know, he Bach had 20 children off two marriages, and uh, but death very much part of life. So 11 of his children died before he did. And um, 
you know, the rites of passage are never far away. So uh, uh, Anna Magdalena, his second wife, who he married at the age of, she was 21, he was 16 years older. She had, in nine years, she was pregnant virtually every year for nine years, which is pretty knackering. So I think that um, it was a visceral place. Survival was absolutely the name of the game. And also a very um, faithful place in which... When you talk about faith, this wasn't really so much a matter of belief. It was a matter of fact. I mean, there was the fact of universal salvation is open to you all and you have to earn your place. And so life is very much a preparation for death and how you live your life will guarantee how you die and your place in the afterlife. So there's always one eye on eternity and this very big sense uh, that we obviously we still have today, that our lives are transient and we are just, you know, a fleeting shadow through this. We have this brief moment of either side of eternity, that Beckett idea, we give birth a stride of a grave, the light gleams an instant and then it's light once more. That's absolutely what it must have been like to be in Leipzig. You feel quite fragile. Um, Your flickering humanity is quite fragile in the great darkness of being. Johann Sebastian Bach, of course, you know, has claimed to be possibly the greatest composer ever. Um, But when we meet him, when we see him through Stefan's eyes, he's the cantor at this at this school. Obviously, not the not the colossal world figure that he would later become after his death. He's also, we find out in the narrative, being previously a court composer, and we see all the covers. There's a there's a, a moment where um, the composer Telemann comes to you know comes to dinner at the house and and is obviously being more successful than Bach at the time in his life. So I wanted to talk about what a composer, what life would have been like for a composer, how that would have, how they would have manifested being a composer at this time. Well, that's one thing we can know quite a lot about. Um, He was a court composer in Curtin and in Weimar before that. His major job was an organist. He started off as an organist. He's an organist composer and he's a massively brilliant keyboard player. But as soon as he comes to Leipzig in 1723, so he is 38 years old. He's like head of music at a school. He's head of music at a small school with these 55 kids. And his job is also to run, provide the music for these four churches with the four choirs that he makes up in the school. But he has a weekly job of composing a cantata every week. So on the Monday morning, he starts to write a cantata, which can be anything from 18 to 25, 26 minutes. He can use existing hymn tunes for the chorales. There's generally got to be something for a soprano, alto, tenor and bass, so they might have arias each. There's some communal um, work too. But basically, he takes the text, the religious text of the Sunday, and sets it to music. So if it's grief, it's a minor key. If it's celebratory, it's a major key. He chooses his key. He sets down to write it out. He starts on the first, the first rehearsals on a Tuesday, the next rehearsals on a Wednesday, motet practice. They only come together, all of them together on the Saturday for a kind of two or three hour rehearsal. And then they perform it on the Sunday morning with the instrumentalists. There are eight regular instrumentalists, and then they can add people in. And they're, the, they're paid for by the town council. So every week they're working towards a performance every week that takes place on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. And as soon as that's over, then you've got to write the next one. So there's a, it's basically a show a week. 
well as all the other music that he has to uh, provide, all the other things, but an original piece every week. So that really sets the tone. In between that, he's teaching, he's rehearsing the choirs, he's teaching the organ, he's also taking Latin lessons, which he also delegates to prefects because he can't be bothered to teach them some of the time, gets into a lot of trouble by not turning up and saying, you do the Latin lesson or you do class teaching. And he's not great at uh, school bureaucracy. And uh, he's absolutely focused on on the music and and running that school and getting these pieces as right as they can be. So we know quite a lot about what he was doing every week because we follow the set text. And, you know, because the great advantage of having a very famous composer is that there's quite a lot of stuff that survives about his routine. And there are also things like there is the school rules still survive, both from 1723 and 1727 when they were revised. There's a school timetable. So you can track Bach's movements across a typical week. And you can even sort of think about what a, a typical day might be. So that's very helpful. And that as a novelist is where you start from. You start trying to imagine each day, uh, the routine of each day, and then you try and put special things into it. You try and inject drama into these regular days. And obviously at this time in, in this position, the music is indivisible from the church. The two things are unimaginable without each other. Yes, although there is, there are coffee concerts, the, the coffee houses, this is the great age of the coffee house. So Zimmerman's Coffee House in Leipzig also has concerts twice a week where they go to have fun. So there is quite a lot of secular music, but this is quite interchangeable in a, in a strange way. So there are examples of pieces that have been reworked. Previously, they were dedicated to the prince in Curtain. And then you just rework the words a bit and rework the music a bit. And they go to the Prince of Peace, which is Jesus. So he does, you know, ceremonial music is still ceremonial music, but you can move it across to the church for a ceremony as well. And courtly music and religious music can be much more interchangeable than people think. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to James Runcie, and we're talking about his new novel, The Great Passion. And James, you've already mentioned something about Bach's family and his wife, and the family life is depicted in the novel because Stefan, for the first part of the novel, is fundamentally adopted into the family because he's having such a bad, a bad time at school. So tell us something else about Bach's family life. Well, I think that the key thing is that music is very much part of it, practice and rehearsal. We know what his living quarters were like. So we do know he had his own composing room and off it was a room for two student copyists and Stefan joins them. So it's it's imagine your teacher or somebody who has two rooms in which to compose. Then there's a reception room where people come there's also kitchen and food and everything but when he's there he arrives in Leipzig with uh, four children and his dead wife's sister so he's got his sister-in-law living with him as well as a new wife and the new wife Anna Magdalene is is 21 and his older daughter is, is 14 so there's only seven years between his daughter and um his new wife And then, of course, there are uh, younger children. There are four from the first marriage. And then all these babies start arriving, one of whom dies at the age of three, uh, which is featured in the novel. So there's always children, always nursemaids, cooks. And there's, again, no privacy, very, very little privacy. So everything is public. The music is, there's a a harpsichord, a clavichord, uh, violins, cellos. We do have uh, Bach's will, which lists all the musical instruments that were in the house. So it was a massive musical family with lots of things going on. And then, of course, the famous sort of green baize door that divides their living quarters from the school. But there's only one door between him and the the school. And also he's on school duties. And if you imagine it's it's basically like being a housemaster in a school. And uh, Anna Magdalene's wife would be like a matron, would patrol the dormitories and would see how people were and look after people. And that's how he gets taken in. There's um, a sanatorium for the sick. There's a prison in the school, as it works called the Casa. And there's a man popping in and out called the Calefactor who uh, provides wood and candles because obviously it's very cold in the winter. So, uh, and he gets free candles, free firewood, and a limited amount of free beer. So beer, wood, uh, and candles come in and out of this, this living quarter. So you would see people coming, swinging by in and out all the time, and as well as visitors and parents wanting to enlist their children at the school, uh, people going to auditions. So it's very, very busy. So you mentioned that his, his young daughter dies, and, and that's the, the tragedy, the catalyst that basically encourages him to write the St. Matthew Passion in the yes, novel. a bit of a liberty taken here, but yes, a sort of thing, yes, because in the midst of life we are in death. So it's that, and we do know he wrote Cantata 82 in this time, which is Ich habe genug, which is I've had enough. It's, it's, somebody, it's about Simeon seeing Christ before he dies. So it's, we do know he's writing these extraordinary emotional pieces about death and trying to well, frankly, turn grief into beauty. And that is that passage from Ezekiel, uh, to make beauty for ashes. And he's trying to make grief beautiful, trying to make grief something transcendent, something to have meaning, to have, to find some reason why it all happens, to understand human suffering and to plumb the depths of grief in order to try and get out of this terrible grief that people suffer after a loss. And so you've already mentioned what you think of, of this piece of music, but let's talk about, for anyone who, who hasn't heard it, why it is now 
come to be so loved? I think it's so loved because it com- it does this extraordinary thing of combining grandeur with intimacy. It has an extraordinary opening chorus, which involves two choirs, two orchestras talking to each other in antiphonal singing. It has incredible richness and sonority and depth, and is, of course, taken from two chapters of St. Matthew's Gospel, chapters 26 and 27. And it travels through the story of Christ's death, uh, not resurrection, it ends with death. Uh, and rest, and the idea of rest. But what's extraordinary is that in the middle of these pieces, there is an extraordinary, often, for example, the central, possibly the central aria is called Aus Liebe, um, for love, Christ dying for love. And it's only two oboes, flute, one singer, that's it. It's incredibly simple. And so it can move from simplicity to grandeur. It can get right to the heart, the simple essence of things, and yet it can also be enormously bold and big and far greater than anything we can imagine. So it moves on both the human scale and the divine scale, and they kind of interweave that kind of human and transcendent eternal scale. So it's both in a set time and timeless. There's something magical about it. Uh, And obviously the musical forces, he writes for the a special oboe called the Oboe de Caccia, which has enormous sadness and sonority to it. He's obviously writing for specific people as well, so he's really uh, stretching them. The interesting thing is there are no trumpets in it, so there's no joy, very little joy. There's beauty, but there's no joy. Normally you'd write with trumpets, but trumpets don't appear at all. Um, It's quite sparse at times, but it has a compelling rhythm to it as well. There's a rhythm, there's a endless... What I think I feel about it, uh, and what many people perhaps feel, is that if it's always existed, it's as if a piece wasn't actually necessarily composed in 1727, although it was. It's as if it it always existed and always will. It seems to step outside time. Well, whether it was composed in 1727 or not, we do nowadays tend to sort of forget that this type of music was made to be played. This was obviously before, you know, there was any way to record music. Whereas, you know, nowadays I can just knock up Spotify and listen to multiple different versions of it at a whim. But where we can't hear it, obviously, is in the novel. So I wanted to talk to you about how do you write about the creation of music in this form, where we can't actually hear it? Well, that's really hard, of course, because you've got to give a sense of it. But it's the same as describing food, for example, or Mm -hmm. describing a landscape that you can't go to. But what you have to do is try to give it an immediacy for the people doing it. You have to try and make it very present tense. And what I've done is basically go into the rehearsal room and show the music as it's being created, as people are working with it. So it's not a finished product. I'm not working at it. I'm not talking about it as something finished. I'm talking about something being explored and people, you know, appreciating it and working with it and trying to play it, trying to play the damn thing and make it as good as possible. And because I think that it's very important to think about hearing and playing this music for the first time, because it's actually, that is what storytelling is. You should really try and 
make it clear that you are writing this for the reader to read for the first time as if you've not told this story to anybody else. So for each reader, you are trying to give a sense of immediacy and freshness, and you're trying to get people, you're trying to have a sense of both urgency and immediacy by saying, listen, I've just heard this. I've just found this out. This is a story that needs telling. I want to tell you about it now. And that's one of the main aims of that, to try and create that freshness and to try and create that sense of of what it was like. And you have to sort of go around the subject as much as into it. It's it's a bizarre little thing you have to do. Obviously, I can't, but I can, I hope people might, you know, play the St. Matthew Passion while reading it or have it around them in some way. I mean, of course, the other irony is that we've listened to it far more than Bach ever did, because he would perform it, I don't know, he performed it every other year from 1727. It sort of went, he might have performed it 10 times, and most people and performers today, you know, they work with it for 20, 30, 40 years. And they're far more familiar with Bach's and Matthew Passion than anyone in 1727 would have been, which is quite an odd thing. To finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit of the book? Yes. I mean, this is a bit from I'm going to read a bit from um, how they how they started to uh, prepare it. And what I found out was that they'd been to there was an execution in a public execution in Leipzig in early February 1727. So I imagine that uh, Bach and his librettist Picander, the person who wrote the words, and Stefan all went to this execution and saw it and then come home and uh, have a little um, have a little think about what they've learned from it and how they do it. And so this is a little a little piece from it's about a, it's about it's just under two pages. Um, and uh, this is what what happens when they return from this public execution. We have to be ambitious, Picander said, after we'd returned to the composing room and use the inspiration from everything we have experienced, all that death and torment, all that we have seen and thought and heard and read. Otherwise, we'll become stale and repeat ourselves. We need to be bold to challenge our friends with the urgency and ferocity of our sorrows. The cantor threw three logs onto the fire. He wasn't going to wait. We have to make the notes as shocking and unpredictable as grief itself. Take notes, Monsieur Silverman. It must be more than the story in the gospel, Picander said. The congregation listen to that every year. Most of them have learned it off by heart. There's no surprise and no drama because everyone knows what happens. We have to surprise as well as reassure. It makes me think we should go further. How? We concentrate on what the story means at the same time as telling it. We develop the themes of sacrifice, sorrow and loss, extracting all the pain and all the love so that when it comes to the end, the congregation understands that there's nothing left to give. Nothing more can be said or sung. The cantor stood by the fire as the wood took, a work that is an act of faith in itself. We have to make them think that their lives depend on how well they listen. We have to present the hardest and most bitter sorrow anyone has ever known. And how do we do that? We set the story in the present, What would the people of Leipzig say if Christ came to us today and they saw him now in the town square or outside the city walls? Would they believe him? Would they follow him? Or would they still crucify him as they've just killed that prisoner we saw beheaded? What happened there was far more violent and prolonged than anything anyone had been expecting. The crowd was volatile, impatient and quick to condemn. Their inhumanity was frightening. And so I think we should reflect their behaviour. And we have to tell the story as if we're doing so for the first time. 
It can't be a somber reflection on something that happened long ago. We need agitation, conflict. Perhaps we can even imagine the past and the present speaking to each other, what it means to those first witnesses to the passion of our Lord and what it means to us now, our truth and their truth, how people crucify Christ every day. An opening exordium, a funeral tombo. Write this down, Monsieur Silverman. Two choirs, the Old and New Testament. We open in E minor, the key of lamentation. Two orchestras as well as the choirs. We dramatise it all, Picander continued, picking up speed as he spoke. The how, the when and the where. We include dialogue, soliloquy and prayer. And the congregation become part of the story. They cannot escape their responsibility. They're made to think about their guilt and the nature of penitence and redemption. They have to know what it is to lose everything they hold dear. Monsieur Silverman, are you taking this down? The cantor asked. We start with an invitation to mourn, to share in the drama rather than simply listen to it. We help the congregation understand the inevitability of loss and sorrow. Other people raise their questions in books and sermons. We answer them in music. So I've been talking to James Runcie. We've been talking about his new novel, The Great Passion, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. James, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89UP. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.